Hello, Detroit and the world. Welcome to another episode of Authentically Detroit, broadcasting live from the Lower East Side here in the city, powered by the East Side Community Network and sponsored by none other than the Ford Foundation. Now a content partner to the new FridgeDetroit.com. I'm Orlando Bailey. And I'm Donna Givens-Davidson. Donna, you got it right. You I said was, your name right. I was so smooth, right? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening in and supporting our efforts to build a platform of authentic voices for real people on the east side of Detroit. We want you to like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast on whatever platform you listen to us on. We drop a new episode every week, so be sure to turn on those notifications. Today, we are happy to welcome Anika Goss, who serves as the Executive Director of Detroit Future City, DFC for short. DFC recently released a framework entitled Economic Equity, a Vision for Detroit. Anika, welcome to Authentically Detroit. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Well, we're so I'm excited. So excited that you're here. That you're here. <laughs> Donna, can you believe she's a first timer on here? I can't believe that. I know. First, but not the last, right? Right. I hope so. <laughs> yeah, definitely not the last at all. Yeah. It's certainly a lot going on in the world, ladies. And as we've been asking every week, I just want to know how you doing? How are you? How's the week going? Donna, how are you? Well, um, you know, it's been really busy time and um, I've spent some time just trying to relax over this past weekend, but I'm doing well and I'm getting ready to do something really, really exciting. Um, I'm preparing next um, semester, I guess the spring semester at some universities to um, be a guest lecturer at Columbia University teaching wow. on resilience and um, in 21st century Detroit. So I am super excited about that, but also really busy trying to put together the syllabus for a semester long class, which is something I've never done, but it's in my bucket list, right? So I'm excited. How about that? That is so amazing. <laughs> I you love to do that. That means that Anika Goss and Orlando Bailey will be able to put guests special guest speakers or lecturers at Columbia University on our resume because Donna's teaching there, right? Right, well, you know, and I'm definitely gonna need some help with some of these <laughs> topics. So the, the way it started was a few years ago, I um, was a um, panelist at a science conference, the National Society for Science Education or something like that. And I was a panelist and one of the panelists recommended me to a professor at Columbia to be a guest speaker. And so I agreed to be a um, panelist and I mean, a guest speaker. And I went there and um, put together a proposal, uh, I'm sorry, a curriculum, talked for a day and it was really popular. So he asked me back the next year and I went back the next year. And then he asked me back the next year and I didn't get paid. I just went because I really loved doing it. And so he said, well, why you, I really appreciate you doing it. And I said, I love teaching. You know, one of my dreams has always been to one day teach. And so um, after the George Floyd incident, he reached out to me and asked me if I would do a workshop on racism this summer. Um, okay. It's, so, it's okay, Donna. So Donna got grandbaby at home with her. And so you'll hear, you'll hear Luna in the background, pay her no mind, it's all good. We, it's all, it's good. all good. This is my other role, grandmother, which I love. Okay, so I'm probably the favorite <laughs> right now. Yeah. But anyway, so they asked me to be a guest speaker and I agreed to be a guest speaker. And then on that basis, um, they asked me if I would be willing or interested in coming to teach a course. So I'm going to have to take a break right now. I'll be back. 
Okay, Anika, how are you? I I'm really I'm I'm stressed. <laughs> I'm I'm under. Um, yeah, it's kind of tight over here. I feel like that, you know, that vice, I'm not sleeping well. My melatonin intake is getting higher and higher every night. I, I think after a certain amount of time, we may just become immune to it because I, I'm like, this melatonin isn't working. Do I need a higher dosage or like what is going on? Yeah. I know. So, but I'm, I'm also, I'm here and I am blessed to be able to do this good work every day and to be in Detroit doing this good work, you know? Um, so you, you also have to count your blessings, truly. Yeah. I think it's important to try to live in a space of gratitude, but also acknowledge that sometimes the day to day is just hard and we need to be able to release that and name that. And then it's election time. And I know that is causing a lot of folks <laughs> to be just a tad bit stressed out. I'm hearing yeah. more of Donald Trump's voice than I would like to. Uh, <laughs> oh my God. Grading. I had a, uh, it's so funny. I had a, um, a radio appearance uh, last week to sort of wrap around about the debate, which meant I had to watch the debate. Mm. And what a traumatic experience. I mean, just, yeah. Which, which one, the first one or the second one? The second one. Oh, the second one. The second one was easier. Yeah. The I first one. I didn't watch the first one. Oh, the first one was awful. It was, I mean, it reminded, it kind of reminded me of, I don't know if you ever saw those videos um, years ago of like the British parliament when they would break out into fights. Did you ever see that? Like, it would be like these crazy kind of things. Um, these videos where they would get so angry at each other they would like, eh, you know, and it was, I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, and it would baffle me. Like, who does that? Like, who gets so upset? These people, they're not American, you know? <laughs> and now here we are, and you could totally see somebody. I expected by the, the, the first debate was so bad, I completely expected a fist fight by the second debate to, to watch. Two seventy-somethings on <laughs> a fist fight on a debate stage. I fully expected it. I would not have been surprised. But you know, I think in fairness, though, um, that was Trump's debate strategy was to get under Biden's skin and to provoke him. Um, that's what he and Christie practiced before um, Typhoid Trump ended up giving mm. Christie um, COVID nineteen. But you know, when you have somebody who is deliberately insulting you and provoking you. It's kind of hard. I mean, not everybody is Anika Goss, right? We were talking about this on Facebook today. Yes. Chase talked about how Thank great Anika was. Well, right. I have never Goss. seen Anika lose it. I have, I'm, in fact, I'm going to try to lose it today because it's like, it's got to be a skill set. I didn't practice afraid of COVID, but I'm going to try to make you lose the day because Anika does not lose it. I have sat in the craziest meetings with Anika. We have been cussed out at city council table. Anika's very calm and she just... Well, as I was saying, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so 
Where is the lie? It's so true. You know what? I think what it is is Anika is an older sister. How many sisters? Do you yeah, have? I have two younger sisters. She has two younger sisters, and so it's clear she learned some skills as big sister, just handling the business and keeping everybody in check. Because we will be added in these meetings, but Anika never, ever, ever. She just she smiles just like this. Look, if you're watching, you know what? What's so crazy about that, Donna? First of all, I'm really glad this is recorded so I can show my family, because I am considered the hothead in the family. Like, if there's something that they need, if they need somebody in the family to like check somebody or say some pop off, they call me. <laughs> they call me. That is so that's you know, I, I think it's it's, it's thank it's you contextual right so not the professional hothead but you take it all out on everybody else right because right. <laughs> you're a calm one and you have to be um having the job that you have because you are over an organization um that has historically led to some mistrust in the community that's right. Pull it away from those historical underpinnings to where it is today. Um, starting out, people thought that this was an organization that was going to displace Black Detroit, and now you are leading conversations about equity. And in that process, you just had to be cool. I'm sorry, Orlando. I know we jumped ahead, but I had to bring that up. It's okay. Okay. I got... Go ahead. I'm, I'm actually really glad you brought that up because. Um, so I think one, I think for one, I had the luxury of um, not being in Detroit during the framework process. So I don't, so when people are like coming at me or really, and then, you know, like going in about what DFC has done, I'm like, really sorry you feel that way you know like I I was not that I'm being dismissive because I I believe that that happened but I don't have that kind of personal pull because I I wasn't here to experience it so I think that's the first thing the second thing is that there are some things um that I believe are true about the framework that I'm not willing to let others uh, completely throw it away. The framework was the first time we had a, the voices of 160,000 people participate. Now, whether or not you necessarily agreed with everything the way it came out, or we didn't implement things the way you thought they did, before that we were not, there was no other process at least as far as I've been in Detroit, where they were talking about the economic future for the next 50 years for vacant. How much do we talk about vacant land? Nobody wants to talk about vacant land. When I came back to Detroit after being gone for eight years, everybody was talking about vacant land. And part of that reason came out of the framework. And as I said, there were a lot of things that they didn't do right, but that that voice, that process of and that opportunity to have that voice, I think was a moment in time that changed Detroit forever and for, for good. Well, you know, I just want to say a couple of 
one of them is that um, I think that the timing of that framework and some of the other conversations that were happening in parallel where there were conversations not by the Detroit future cities, but other people about mothballing parts of the city and discontinuing mm. services um, were not the conversations about what do we do with vacant land, but really how do we um, move people around in a way that, that, that creates something. And that, that, that whole framework actually helped spur ECN into the Lower East Side Action Plan and into um, trying to create a framework by which people could remain where they are while at the same time addressing vacancy. Exactly. So I think you're right. Parallel I think those are planning questions. Yeah. But there was a parallel planning process, but that initial concern that residents were going to be kicked out or residents were going to be displaced led to something. And that conversation did not really emanate from DFC. Right. Gets the credit or the blame for that, <laughs> right? And I think that's. I think in any major process, it's not going to be. You're going to get both sides of it. Mm-hmm. I've had to have. I've been in community meetings where I've had to say, I, I, nobody wants your house. Nobody wants your house that you're living in, on Lakewood or whatever street you live on, and you're the only house there. And when nobody's cut, nobody at DFC wants your house. I can tell you that, but I can appreciate, and I I value so much that process of voice and agency, because I tell you what, before that, what I remember about working in Detroit is that it was very commonplace to just accept whatever whatever was given as policy, right? You might be mad, there might be a few people that were mad, there might be a few people that were activists and organized around certain things, right? But they were just considered one voice. And I do feel like the leap was given agency because in the environment, Donna, just as you said, it was an environment, it was a whole, it was this, this was this experience of my voice needs to be heard because I live here and I am living in this process. And that's the part that I really want people to hold on to. This is what I'll also say. One thing about Detroit Futures, and I will say it on Authentically Detroit, and everybody can quote me and we can talk about it. But um, I think the trauma of 2010, what it was like to be in 2010 in Detroit. In 2010, Detroit had three, had just had, had experienced three mayors in a year and a half, three mayors in a year and a half, and were on the verge of bankruptcy. Police weren't coming, there were no lights, your trash wasn't being picked up. It was not a safe place in most of our neighborhoods in 2010. And so there's trauma just from that. And then on top of that, this process that promised so much hope for everyone and then ended up, there were some people who were really let down by that, right? Not everybody, there, but some people expected a lot more than they got from the framework. Mm-hmm. That's another trauma that they had experienced because if you were already living in a traumatic space, 
And then there's another experience that doesn't have to, it wouldn't have been the end of the world in any other circumstances, but it's because you're already experiencing trauma. And so we talk about very openly at Detroit Future City that that, is a, that trauma is a part of our it's a part of our history and that we don't deny that, that we recognize that, that we try to live beyond that trauma so that we can make amends, that we can rectify and make sure that every, anyone who felt like that feels included in the future of Detroit. But you know, the trauma is right? Yeah, I do. caused in part by um, the tax foreclosure crisis by predatory crisis, by emergency management, which was a constructed crisis in many people's minds, especially with the revenue sharing issues that took place, by a constructed crisis. And so behind all of that trauma and underlying all of that trauma is the history of race in Detroit. Right. History of a racialized trauma and acknowledgement that this kind of trauma never would have happened to this degree in places like Gross Point, that people That's in right. Gross Point have too much value in our political system to be um, subject to predatory government and to the, the relaxation or the, the really suspension of democracy because democracy becomes inconvenient. So we'll just put in an emergency manager until we can make it convenient again for you people to vote. But we'll have a person who is overseeing your finances just in case you people get out of line. Yeah. And so the context of that means that the, the trauma we're dealing with is a trauma of a complete collapse in trust in governmental systems. And in anybody who seems like they're close to governmental systems is going to be, you know, kind of accused of, well, you know, you're one of them. Whose side are you on? And, um, and I would imagine that that's impacting Detroit Future Cities also. <laughs> yeah, we deal with that. And so, you know, we spent, I spend a lot of time facing forward, right? Like, what are, so now what are we going to do? We, we have learned, we understand and recognize that all of these things have happened. What are we doing now to make sure that our future is bright, right? Like, the, that's a heavy load to try to create a bright future in Detroit right now. Yeah. That's a heavy, yeah. that's a heavy task. Think about that. One of the things that I'll just uh, quickly, you know, add to this conversation is not only have we been traumatized by, as Donna said, the loss of democratic power and so many other things that have happened to Detroiters um, over the years, but uh, a, a I know for sure that we are also in active trauma <laughs> yeah. with, with the times that we are living in. And so I think, you know, as Detroit Future City and even as a community development professional, we have to make room for however that trauma shows itself when we report publicly. And that's the piece that a lot of people miss because it is misconstrued as conflict and dissent. And right. really listen to what people are going through. They are expressing the trauma of what happened in years past and what's happening currently. And all we got to do is listen. I think that we got to solve the problem and not get offended if we feel like they're disagreeing with us, but just listen. 
I completely and, agree. And, and the thing is, you know, when you tell anybody after slavery, after Jim Crow, after everything that's happened, just get over it. That's in the past. That has a way of making people do the opposite. So um, I think there is room for that. But I think that some of the forward facing things that you are doing really are working to address that trauma. Directly. Yeah, I hope so. Let's yeah. look at this. So before we get into that, I know um, okay. we went off script a little bit because we have some other things that we're supposed to do before we really do a deep dive into Detroit Future Cities. Um, Orlando? It's time to fresh off the press news that we're thinking about. If you have pieces that you want discussed on Authentically Detroit, you can hit us up on our socials at Authentically Detroit on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can email us at authenticallydetroit at gmail.com. Donna, fresh off the press. Okay, from Bridge Detroit Magazine. Detroit plan would create marijuana entrepreneurs. Cannabis convictions, okay. This is by Olivia's Olivia Lewis, um, published on October 26, a couple days ago. And um, speaking of trauma, <laughs> marijuana, mass incarceration, and the number of people who are arrested and have felony convictions due to marijuana crimes. And now a whole different class of people is coming into Detroit and getting wealthy selling marijuana. And there are people who are still locked up today. That's right. Knowing exactly what those folks are. And um, there's been, it's a, this has been a long time coming. I know that um, people have been waiting on the marijuana ordinance and James Tate has said and others, well, we're not ready for it. And you know, to some people, the delay is inexcusable that it's taken so long. But what in fact they did was come up with an ordinance that does give um, priority to legacy Detroiters. Detroiters are legacy Detroiters based on the number of years um, having lived in Detroit. Um, and if you are a legacy Detroiter, the amount of money you have to pay to get a license is I think 1% of what anybody else has to pay. And there's, um, you can also purchase property from the city, city-owned property at 50% of its value. So this is an effort to say, let's equalize the debt. If you are experienced marijuana salesperson, we're not gonna hold that against you. <laughs> or if you have a, a, a previous cannabis conviction, we're not gonna hold that against you. Yeah, well, that's what I mean by experienced salesperson, okay? is a street cred. Now we wanna give access to some actual cred and opportunity. So I think um, it's doing the right thing. Um, I haven't read it in detail, you know, the devil's yeah, me neither. details, but it's a good start. And I honor the intentions of this ordinance. I think that this is exactly where the city should go because when I first heard, we had a community meeting talking about the marijuana ordinance and the amount of money you had to buy in. And it's like, okay, this is very easily going to be something that Detroiters cannot participate in doing. And also, you know, some of the criminal standards and stuff like that. So hats off to city council for finally, you know, getting it close to right. I'm not gonna say it is right. And given all of the other disappointment in recent city council decisions by many Detroiters, I hope they look at this as a step in the right direction. I know, right? We've been going off on city council on this show. Oh. But, you know, I think that, uh, you know, the creation of this ordinance would help a lot of our weedpreneurs, that's what we've been calling them, uh, friends, uh, you know, go legit. So I also want to clarify that the dispensaries that you currently see in Detroit 
are medical marijuana dispensaries. They aren't, re they aren't recreational dispensaries. So some folks have said, we've already seen a ton of dispensaries in Detroit. So there's a clarification. This is a recreational marijuana ordinance. And they have so many, uh, I think about, uh, I wanna say so, to the tune of 70 or 75 slots available for recreational marijuana licenses. And so I think that uh, this is an opportunity to explore economic equity, Anika, <laughs> when we talk about uh, this coming online and the opportunity yeah. to be entrepreneurs. I, uh, so we, we debated about this in the office uh, with our team. Um, this is how we spend our team meetings and whatnot. Um, and I, I think what I, I love, similar to Donna, I usually agree with Donna. <laughs> um, <laughs> I really like the framing of this policy. I really do, because it sets the right intention. Um, I, I feel like part, marijuana is not federally legalized yet. And so that's one issue, right? That's one issue. Uh, so I think there, there's a question, I'm not saying it is, but there is a question of how much um, recreational marijuana use would uh, limit job opportunities from, uh, for young people or middle people who are not able to pass drug tests when they when they are needing those drug tests. Um, two, I, I'm, what I don't know enough about is the financing of this and access to capital is really, really hard for black and brown people, period. And so I don't know, are they creating another financial vehicle to finance these businesses? Um, because I'm assuming they have to be an established business. I'm not coming to Donna's house to buy weed. That's not a business. That's just, you know, or you're not coming to my house to, to buy weed. I'm just selling weed. I mean, it's no different than it was before, right? Um, so I think if we're going to stand up a new, so my, and then the third issue, let me just say what the third issue is. The third issue that I'm really worried about, um, mostly because I have a 20-year-old son, 21-year-old son, and I worry about him constantly, is if they, if we now, if we now have this new policy, are will our will people be over-policed that are in this industry? Because there's an assumption that if there's weed, there's also other drugs, other street drugs. And so those are my issues. Those are some of the debate issues that I want to talk about, address, research, understand more. I also, you know what I wish they had done that I haven't seen yet? I haven't seen policy um, about growing marijuana to scale, which quite frankly to me is a much uh, it, it has less of a um, has less of the connotation 
of marijuana use, right? If you're just, if you're growing, if you have a farm, if you have an urban garden, and I don't mean like the amount that you're, that you that you're allowed to grow. You're allowed to grow a certain amount right now. What I mean is like, we're about to grow an acre of marijuana, in, you know, in Detroit and turn it into an urban farming issue and make some real money. So I, and there's no, they, have, they haven't been willing to address uh, urban farming and marijuana growth uh, yet. And so I, I wanna see that attached to it. I agree. I agree. Is that the um, only way you can grow in Detroit is indoors. You can't grow right. in outdoor spaces. Um, you know, speaking of vacant land reuse, um, just a minute. <laughs> there's um, people who are trying to grow grapes for wine, but um, I imagine this would be many times more profitable if they did allow that. Yeah. Um, but I think that, you know, that, that brings, that calls so many more things into question. Do you want to be a city where that is what's being farmed in the city? Um, there is a long way to go. And that you're absolutely right. I mean, I really think that we need to evaluate the policy of drug testing period. Um, it's a ridiculous policy to me. You're not testing to see if somebody drank last night. You're testing to right. see if smoked weed. Not now, not to see if you're intoxicated, but to see if it's in your system. Right, a month ago. Weeks. And, um, you know, there are tests that you could conduct to see if somebody had, had alcohol in their system period of time. We just don't do it because, you know, they do that with drunk drivers. And that's how you know the test exists. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if they are as effective as the hair strand test for marijuana, but I just think that we have to ask ourselves whether this social policy works because so many people um, are already shut out of jobs unnecessarily. Um, the question and the standard should be for me, does the person show up at work intoxicated? Um, we have people who are taking um, prescription drugs that are a lot stronger and they're allowed to. And I just think that the uh, racial element of drug policy has to be explored. And we have to look at what kind of jobs people test for. Um, there's certain jobs you can go to and nobody's gonna test you, you know? And there's right. other types of jobs, primarily the entry level jobs where testing is really, really severe. And so um, I'm not a person, um, I don't smoke. Um, I'm not a person who advocates everybody needs to, it's gonna make people feel good, but that's a personal choice I make. It's not mm -hmm. a choice I'm asking anybody else to make. And mm -hmm. it's nobody's business. I'm just putting it out there because I don't want people to look at this as my self-interest. This is my concern for community interest. And also, whenever you have a policy, the war on drugs and every aspect of the war on drugs, whether it's testing for employment, whether it is arresting people, whether it is the three strikes law, the mandatory minimum laws, all of those things have always produced racist outcomes. Right. We can't hire black police officers. What do people say? the weed, okay? We can't hire black people here. What do people say? The weed. And black people are not the only people smoking weed. And that's the last thing I wanna say on this topic. If black people were the only people smoking weed, it would not have been made legal, okay? <laughs> Recreational <laughs> marijuana was voted yes on the ballot because a whole lot of people across the country are partaking in its benefits. If you look at where they are, locating a lot of the medical marijuana shops they are in areas adjacent to suburban areas you better say you do, but not drive into the hood okay right the the other thing that i would say is uh, as i chair the uh of the board of one detroit credit union we've been having this conversation mm -hmm. 
around uh, cannabis banking. And one of the things that has to happen is the banking industry, the credit union industry has to catch up to be able to provide banking services and products for these legal businesses, especially here in the city of Detroit. What we learned in our research is that uh, the marijuana industry is heavily cash-based, even if you have right. provisioning centers and things of that sort. So you need special kind of ventilations and other kinds of interests uh, to provide financial services for these businesses. So I think the, the banking industry is going to have to catch up and spend a little bit of capital on the front end to be able to accommodate these new entrepreneurs. And so one Detroit credit union is looking at it. I'm not saying that we're doing it, but it is something that we are. That is really exciting. Conversation I was just thinking it. that. Um, that I'm not promising nothing. I was just thinking we needed a weed, a marijuana CDFI. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and, and Orlando's the chair of <laughs> you show you how to do it, Orlando. I'll show you. <laughs> we'll set you up. Well, one thing that we're also throwing around in this, which is connected to this, and then I'm going to, because I know you guys have a platform, but um, I've gotten really excited lately about the idea of public banks. Have you heard about this? No. So public banks, there's only a few of them. California just passed the legislation for them. Donna, I mean, you might have to pull your lobbying hat back on with me. We might have to get the girls back together um, <laughs> and get uh, for a public bank. It's legislation that allows for a public entity, either state, county, or city government, to take part of their deposits that they put into commercial banks and put them into, um, it's either a nonprofit or an, or an authority, like a, a public authority. And it has the ability to make mission-driven investments. So it can finance workers' cooperatives. It can finance Black and Latino enterprises. It can finance marijuana, Black-owned marijuana recreational lounges. It can finance Black farms and Black marijuana farms. It can do whatever you want it to do, right? It has a mission-driven. And it's the deposits. It's actually getting these public entities to, just to take a portion of their regular deposits or fees that they would ordinarily put into Chase or Bank of America and put it into this public bank that the community then decides what to do with it. Oh, I oh, know that. Oh, we got to do some research on that legislation. That sounds... I, we've been researching a lot on this. So there's more that to come. Really We're almost to... A board meeting, get the credit union then. <laughs> What would you say? I might bring you into a board meeting at the credit union to explain. <laughs> I'm so new to this. Like, I think we've, we're just learning. I'm trying to bring the staff up to speed on it. So then we can bring in like some experts for other people that are doing it. That is super cool. And I, wow. Okay. 
Yeah. So more on the the wepreneur movement here in the city of Detroit later. Uh, fresh off the press, Detroit's younger and older activists divided on current protests. Um, uh, Bryce Huffman from Greece Detroiters reporting on this, and uh, what the story sort of details. It details about three or four activists, uh, young and older, who have participated in various uh, uh, civil rights movements. Uh, from the last 50 years uh, to date. And one of the folks that they spoke to uh, was Edith Lee Payne, um, who has been advocating at least for uh, the last 50 years. She's a 70 year old woman. And uh, she had uh, some critiques for uh, the Detroit Will Breathe protests in terms of establishing a clear leadership and not having uh, what she characterized as different persons leading. Every, it has to be one clear leader was her critique. And she had a critique around uh, Detroit Will Breathe. She characterized it as picking fights uh, with the Detroit Police Department. Admittedly, uh, she um, stated that her husband is, her late husband was uh, is a retired uh, police oh. officer. So she 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 kind of uh, leaned in that direction, and then we had uh, another lady, Loretta Yancey, who Donna knows very well, who is a former uh, Black Panther and labor um, is saying that you know there really needs to be room to applaud some of the efforts to keep the city safe on part of James Craig. She lived in a neighborhood that was high crime and she, you know, had complaints that were finally addressed uh, by Chief Craig. And so she believes that Chief Craig is doing uh, a great job. This was really a compelling piece, y'all. And then he also spoke to Blair Anderson, who is also a former Black Panther uh, and was there in Chicago with, with Fred Hampton the night he was murdered by uh, Chicago PD and FBI. And, uh, Blair's sentiments were these young folks are fighting for the same things that we were fighting about 50 years ago. We have to support these young people. We have to empower these young people to continue on in the fight for equity and justice. And he said that he would make and has made himself available. And the uh, Nakia Wallace was the other person they spoke to, one of the current leaders in the Detroit Will Brief uh, protest. And Nakia, was so graceful in how she handled uh, those critiques uh, by some of the older activists and even the support uh, by Blair Anderson, saying that you know they have researched heavily the movements of the Black Panthers, Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, and they have adopted many, many elements of those past movements into the current movement. But uh, she is calling on the old and the wise to join, not speak on the sidelines, but to join in in this anti in in their fight for anti-racism and anti-police uh, brutality. I just thought it was really interesting to hear the different vantage points from activists of old and active and new activists. And Donna and Monika, I think sometimes that there is. I don't know if it's a misplaced nostalgia for what was or selective memory of how organized these kinds of 
civil rights uh, movements have been. I, I believe, and even in my research from reading about Dr. King, reading about X, Fred Hampton and the Black Panthers, that there were always different yeah. and movements and messiness in these movements. What are your thoughts? Donna, you're on mute. I think a lot of people, sorry, I think a lot of people my age think that we won civil rights in 1968 and um, <laughs> then something happened and now we got to go get it back again. So let's just do what we did before. And I think a lot of what we do with nostalgia is ahistorical. Um, we have never reached a point of race equity in the United States of America. We've been moving from and towards and whatever and the um, our maybe been, been towards justice, but it doesn't bend cleanly towards justice. There's been ebbs and flows. I think that um, the data will show that we now have home ownership rates that are about what they were in 1968, although we did increase them for a while. But even during that increase, you know, those of us who are working in community <clears throat> development trying to address the issue of um, housing instability know that homelessness has been an issue. Um, Predatory lending has been an issue. Predatory landlords have been an issue all along. Um, there's a certain issue of classism that takes place where you have certain people trying to protect their class interest. And I think it's important to understand that classism is not just something that happens between races. It also happens within races. And so depending on whether or not you want your home protected from the horde, whoever they may be, you're going to line up in favor of law and order. I think there's also even more significantly an issue of ageism where um, people who are my age and older sometimes frequently tend to dismiss the values of people who are younger and act as though they are not able to see life as it is. So we've got to help explain life to them. And so um, what I'm really hopeful for is that um, though there are those of us who are willing to admit with humility, that there's a lot of work to be done and really reach out and provide some support to young people. The best way to get you on my side is to support you, not to stand in the paper and criticize you. My final That's thought right. is that we are speaking to activists, but I would love to have more conversations with folks. I wanna talk to young people who have been experienced police violence. I wanna talk to young people who've been beat up unnecessarily, who see a police car and run the other way because they don't feel safe in the presence of policing. Because honestly, all of this police reform movement is really about police uh, abuse, whether it is manufacturing evidence, you know, and sending it to the prosecutor's office. And we know that's happened in Detroit, okay? Yeah, whether it is police brutality yeah. and the police department settling millions of dollars of cases every year. And we know that happens in Detroit. I personally was involved in a situation where I observed up close and personal in my driveway police brutality. We don't have enough time to talk about it. I talk about it often, but I, I will always remember being afraid that the police would kill somebody that when I was standing right there watching him and every time they punched him, he moved and then they said, quit moving, be still. How can you not be still when you're punching me? My body does not have the ability to not react to your violence. And so, um, it's engraved in my memory and I'm glad it's there, but I think it's also important for us to moving forward, understand that um, the argument is not really about whether I feel safe in policing, whether I feel police are doing a good job because quite frankly, I have never been the target of police abuse. 
the question is, are there people in our community who resemble George, George Floyd and the risk they undertake in terms of being their interactions with police? And if so, we need to fight for them. Mm. Love it. All right. That wraps up our Fresh Off the Press segment. If you have pieces that you want discussed on Authentically Detroit, you can hit us up on our socials at Authentically Detroit on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can email us at authenticallydetroit at gmail.com. Now on to our feature discussion with Anika and her work with Detroit Future City. We've sort of already gotten into some of this, but you guys just released uh, a framework around how to achieve economic equity in Detroit, and you actually talk to uh, residents and young people, what did the methodology and data gathering process look like in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic to yeah. get this underway? So, um, you know, we spent the summer on Zoom. <laughs> um, so, but it was really, really important. I think when we originally intended to come up with a working definition, and originally it started as we were going to come up with a definition for economic equity in Detroit. And by the time we got to the summer and started having these stakeholder sessions, it became uh, what is our vision for economic equity in Detroit? And the sessions, surprisingly, you know, it just so happened that we ended up having these sessions in the middle of all of these protests this summer, right? So they were, so people were, were fresh. They needed an outlet. They needed to talk about it. Um, I think the adults for the, the, the community stakeholders, about half of them were residents and half of them were, you know, nonprofit leaders or institutional leaders that civic leaders, funders, those kind of folks. Um, but it was a, ended up being a good mix. But the meat of it were those kids, man. I learned so much. It was such a beautiful, it was such a beautiful thing. Now, the staff put me in the session with the middle schoolers, which I told them I would never forgive them for that <laughs> because they were, you know, like it's middle school. So all of their Zoom cameras were off. They weren't really participating. You had to ask them direct questions and pull stuff out of them. But once you got them going, Kids have a, I think we really discount uh, Detroit kids and what their vision for the future was. And things like, so the question for the kids, which I don't know that a lot of people know about, for the youth session, we asked, we had about four different youth sessions of maybe 10 kids each or something like that. We had about 50 kids, 50 or 60 kids participate. And we asked them, if you had um, $2 million, I don't know how, where they came up with that number. If you had $2 million, what would you do with it? We expected gym shoes, jewelry, computers, Xboxes. We expected all of that. No. It was, I'm going to buy my mother a house mm -hmm. and we're going to live in it. 
I want, I would go to college and send my, make sure that my siblings could go to college so that I could be the engineer, the doctor, the lawyer that I want to be. I would do something in my neighborhood to make it better so that it was safer. I'd build a gate mm. so we'd keep out the criminals. I would, um, I would give money so that I could have the kind of school that I want to go to. I mean, they were so thoughtful. I mean, just, it was really like, what are we out here doing if we're not out here building this world that they want to live in? If we're not out here creating this kind of Detroit that they want to be in, then we're all wasting our time. That I think motivated me. It was so good to get the community perspective, like all of the community partners and all the adults that go to a lot of these Zoom calls and say what they want. But we really wanted to reflect what those young people said they wanted their Detroit to be in the future. It's highly likely that the ones here still, right? I'm not gonna be here in 50 years. <laughs> I'm not going to be here in 20 years. No, you, 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 I, I mean, I'm gonna be here on this earth. I'm not gonna be here doing authentically Detroit. <laughs> well, I'm gonna be doing authentically Detroit, but that's about it. Um, so you <laughs> my mouth and that's about it, but I'm gonna be running an organization. Um, but, I think, but I think that, you know, it's really important for us to understand the how politics have really aged in the United States. It's gotten crazy, right? I mean, when you look at the fact, I just read something that both George Bush and Bill Clinton are younger than the two candidates for president this year. Oh, I know. I saw that. I and saw Barack that too. Obama right now is 59. And so when you look at the fact that Nancy Pelosi is how old <laughs> and holding on, and, you know, have we made room for young people? Have we made room for the next generation to do what they're supposed to do? You're supposed to turn over and hand off that baton. That's but right. Can, you know, I really think that one of the, the great criticisms of baby boomers, and I'm like the tail end of the boomer, I'm the last year boomers, 1963, and then we switched over to Generation X. But the baby boomers are a pretty narcissistic group. Believe <laughs> That we have all of the answers and we did everything. And some of this is reflected in what you see right now. Um, baby boomers, in a lot of instances, still want to be young. You know, we're still doing things that our kids do. And there's this mindset of refusing to give it up and to allow young people to move into the space. We're grandmas, not grandmas, because grandmas make us sound old. Like, girl, you are old, okay? You can't stay young forever. But... Um, and I say that to say, honestly, it is time for us to prepare to make a case for that next generation. There are brilliant minds. I had my first job as assistant director when I was 25 years old. And mm -hmm. I had the energy to do the work. I was doing things then and you know, really capable at 25 years old. So I have to look at a 25 year old as being capable not capable of doing small things, but doing capable of doing big things. Martin Luther King, I believe, was 26 years old at the time of the Birmingham bus boycott. Wow. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. I, I thought 
The Montgomery boycott. The Montgomery, I'm sorry. Oh my goodness, Montgomery boycotts. Don't talk about me and don't smash my black card. I just, it was a... Uh, <laughs> it's, 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 how, old, how old was he when he died? He was only, he was in his 30s, right? 30. Yeah, yeah. he was in his 30s. And so when you look at the fact that Jesus was in his 30s when he died, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> the revolution, in fact, young people tend to be much more idealistic, revolutionary, ambitious, than older people. And we bring wisdom, we bring knowledge, we bring all of those things, but we cannot allow our wisdom and experience to you know, overshadow the brilliance of our youth. So I really do appreciate you asking the young people and then building that into an equity profile. One of the things I also wanna do is ask younger adults. I'm not allowed to call them young adults anymore because my 30 year old told me that was condescending. Oh, but ask younger adults, I suppose, as, some people were offended when I kept saying that, but ask younger adults questions about how they want to see the world. Some of the staff got together and they didn't want to be called young adults. Cool. But, <laughs> um, but anyway, we, but let younger adults- But these were kids. Like they, these were between 12 and 19. Right. So but what I'm saying is that in our community meetings, the average age of a person who shows up maybe 60. That's right. I, yeah. Us. That's all over the city. We're not talking to 30 year olds about what their life experience right. are, expectations and land use plans. And we're not talking to 40 year olds about it. We tend to move way up to 60. So we talk to kids and then we talk to 60 year olds. And there's that generation of people who are buying homes, renting homes, buying cars, paying off student debt, trying to figure out where they're going to send their kids to school. And we also need to remember to bring them into the dialogue. And that means some of us have to get out the way and be inclusive. Now, going back to Loretta Yancey, I love Loretta, but I will say that there's times when I don't see her listening to young people in some mm. of the meetings that we have. Mm. Mm. And mm. so we also have to stop being disrespectful because when you tell people their voices don't matter, when you say things or behave in a way that the, is, is perceived as condescending, they disengage. So they do. Super excited about your report. So, well, I was just going to say, let me just tell you quickly what to expect next. That that was we did all of these stakeholder meetings. We came up with the equity vision statement. And we just had, now we're gonna start getting into the data and uh, prioritizing uh, economic equity indicators for Detroit. Like what is it that we're actually going to measure? That was my so, next question. So the indicators don't exist yet. Indicators do not exist yet. We just have sort of these high level categories how, of all of the th housing, education, workforce, things that you would expect, right? Yeah, um, we did. We had our first session, which was really interesting last week. Um, no, it wasn't last week. Was it yesterday? It may have been yesterday. <laughs> Poor Mika. <laughs> so it was yesterday, um, <laughs> our indicator workshop and we had 80 people show up 
And all we did was talk about data. Like it was like a, uh, a class on data. And people stayed the entire two hours. And one of the reasons we were trying to figure out like, what, why would you stay for this? And part of it is that we, what we talked about was that all you're getting now is data. It doesn't have to be about what Detroit Future City is doing. It's what, that's all you see. And we talked about that. Like you're seeing data in the media. You're seeing data float across social media. People are throwing numbers out all the time. So we gave, a, you know, sort of a, a mini lesson on this is where data comes from. This is what, how you can track data. This is the data you can get and track it over time. And this is the data that you're gonna get one time and never again. And we had a whole conversation about like what this indicator project and how Detroit Future City was going to begin to collect data and disseminate um, data through this indicator platform that we're wanting to build and getting people, everyone's feedback on that. It was, people stayed for it and appreciated it. They said they, they enjoyed it. The next session in December, I'm sorry, just one last thing. The next session in December, we are, A, we're gonna have another youth session. We're bringing everybody back based on categories. And uh, so we'd like to invite you, we want you to come and, and join us. Um, where we're really trying, we're getting down into what these indicators should actually be. So, and how we're going to track them over time. And so we're getting all of this input. And this is like an open invitation. So we're inviting presidents and CEOs of corporations and presidents and CEOs of block clubs to really talk about what does economic measuring economic equity look like in Detroit? And then you're going to be able to expect um, a report from us on that, a baseline report that we will begin to use to begin to measure along with this indicator, this web-based indicator platform that's going to say this is and this isn't uh, in the beginning of 2021. Yeah. Data Democracy Project, I believe that's what this is called. Yeah. With um, Tawana Honeycomb Petty. Okay, I've heard of the the Data Democracy Democracy Project. Yeah. So I think that it's um, really interesting um, her views on data, and then I was reading this book by Ruha Benjamin, Race After Technology, and mm. it's Abolitionist Tools for the New Jim Code. And she oh. really speaks brilliantly to how data can be used in ways that are not neutral, but that um, reify racism and um, you know past practices. So I think that it's a great um, primer to look at, even as we're looking at these things, to make sure that what we measure and how we measure. And I know we're doing some other data projects with other things, um, but I, I think it's just important to to really take a look at that. So. Yeah, I am gonna look, I wrote it down, raced after technology. Okay. Anika, I have a question around yeah. 
the economic development that's already happening in neighborhoods, especially mm -hmm. strategic neighborhoods. Are you guys keeping a close eye on those processes? And if so, what are you learning um, around, you know, equity in, in those processes and, and developments that are already? So we are unofficially monitoring, like we are not, you know, um, the previous director of our planning department made it really clear that they did not want us involved. So, and our relationship with the city has improved um, over time. So, uh, but we still had staff at almost every meeting in every SNF area, right? Like, so they went they, we've been to all those meetings. Every meeting that people were talking about, we made sure somebody from DFC was there. So one of the things that we've seen and that I think we talked about on a different session and a different platform was that um, neighborhood, like any major economic development action where you can buy low and see make the demonstrable demonstrative change and then the 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 market reacts to that right like if you make a big enough investment you're going to change that market and then there's nothing you can do about it so i think what so what's interesting is some of the feedback that we've gotten over the past week around what role dfc has been playing some of it really has been like maybe DFC does need to be more of a, and I'm going to get this wrong because I don't know baseball, but I've been told to call it balls and strikes. I have no idea what that means. <laughs> but I, I assume it sort of means, and I hate that term, uh, watchdog. The mayor once called me a nag. I don't really care as long as I <laughs> am uh, able to um, have a day, an evidence-based opinion about whether or not investments are working for communities and then being able to share that same information with uh, that neighborhood. Because I think what's gonna be really important is being able to um, make sure that we're not doing damage long-term because you can't come back from it. You cannot undo gentrification once you've changed it, period. Well, you can't. If markets are the measure of success, you will have gentrification. If that's the, how you measure success. Did home values increase? Did you get increased this? We need other measures of success. I'm That's not right. We don't need to look at home values, but home values can be supplemental. But when you start talking about investing in people and human well-being, you're not going to get the quick fix change, um, but it will be more sustainable over time. So I really appreciate you for um, taking the effort, making the effort to have more inclusive studies. I know that um, you are um, and always have been a proud Black woman and you always do represent um, your racial pride in the room. And I think it's important to do that. I mean- Thank you, um, I try. We, we, we have to bring ourselves, our identities, not just our being female, not just being a person of color, but we are black. And as black women, you and I, we have a responsibility to people who we represent. 
because when we that's walk right through, that's who people see and orlando as well as a black man has to represent black men when he comes in there because we are invited into spaces where nobody else is in the room and when we're in there either we're going to represent or we're going to um, hide from who we are um, so i appreciate you because i know that you do get to go into many places and okay. yet you bring out reports like what's happening with the black middle class and you're bringing groundbreak and you're forcing people to look at Detroit's well-being through the prism of blackness, not just, Thank you. Um, you know, race neutral prism. Well, it means a lot to me having been um, raised in Detroit yes. and having been part of a city that a thriving community with so many sectors that thrived and interrelated in ways that were really unique to Detroit and seeing so much of that being dismantled. Yeah. Got to be concerned about what's happening with poor people in our community, what's happening with low-income people. Um, but I will say that the um, creation of this strong black middle-class Detroit that so many people from so many different lives, walks of life could aspire to and be a part of in Detroit was such a uniquely beautiful thing. And to see it come down is really troubling. So I thank you for your reporting and your work around equity. And I know all of that makes a difference. And I'm hoping that we can talk to you next time about policy. Because come back. you know what? We got to come back. This is too gotta short. We gotta okay. Policy we run out of time. <laughs> yep, we have, but yeah. <laughs> well, guys, we will definitely have a new uh, back on the podcast because there's so many things that we want to talk thank about. Thank you. And our time was cut short. But I, and we're sorry that this is your first time, 53 episodes in. Shame on us. But we're wow. fix that. <laughs> would not have known it was 53 episodes if you hadn't said anything, Orlando. <laughs> Listen, it's you okay. Yeah. It's all good. It's so much love. We are all out here doing this work together. I love that you are doing a community podcast. I love it, love it, love it. <laughs> right? Like you are bringing up and the headlines and the report and having people on here talking and lifting up those voices. That's exactly what needs to happen. Thanks, Anika. We appreciate you. <laughs> <laughs> On Thank you. Detroit, you can hit us up on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or email us at authenticallydetroit.com. I only got a couple of shout outs. I just got a shout out Donna Givens Davidson for her lecturer status at Columbia University. If you don't know, now you know. Home girl is big time and she deserves big time. So yeah. Once it for COVID, we'll be trying to gather at your house and toast it up in real time. <laughs> Congratulations, Congratulations, really. I want to shout out all of the early voting poll workers. I voted early today and the process was uh, streamlined and very smooth and the poll workers were very, very nice. They're in for a long day on election day next Tuesday, guys. And so if you do you know that they there are like 15 hour shifts and they don't get to really to take lunch. So if you remember, bring a snack and give it to a poll worker, bring, you know, something that a poll worker can snack on and, you know, a magazine or, you know, if in case the lines are shorter and they have downtime to, you know, just help them move along the day. Um, and uh, you can check out the Authentically Detroit Instagram page if you need a ride to the polls. We have posted uh, some resources there. If you need a ride to the polls next week, uh, we want to help you get your ride. Donna, you have any shout outs? Real quickly, Detroit Disability Power has um, 
supported us in um, doing outreach to voters. So we now have, I believe, five youth and five adults out there knocking on um, doors, just trying to make sure people get out to the polls. I say get out there and vote your conscience. And if Detroiters get out there and vote their conscience, Detroiters are good people and good things will happen in our state. So I wanna thank Detroit Disability Power for taking that on. Um, I wanna thank Detroit Action for also supporting our get out the vote um, activities. And then I wanna support um, voters with voters, not politicians for working with us on trying to help people in our community participate in um, redrawing the voting lines. Nice. And also shout out to all of the staff and volunteers and everybody who supported us for the Eastside Extravaganza last week. Yeah, congratulations. I'm sorry I missed it. Well, and Nikki, you have shout outs? No, I, I wasn't. I, you had to give me more time. Well, shout out to, to Detroit Future City and Anika Goss and Anika's team for a magnificent framework <laughs> and amazing work. That's Thank you. Yes, shout out to the people. Yeah, shout out to you. My peeps DFC. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and and the east side, like everybody who works hard on the east side, we hold it down over here. Yes. Hi, Luna. Shout out to Luna. In the meantime, we thank you for listening. We want you to catch the wave. <laughs>